0: Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church Leeds based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. really good to be here, guys. Um... Exciting to hear that there's opportunities to serve doing a barbecue. Um, All men out there, you know, that is our domain. So uh, really expect a lot of lads to uh, put themselves forward for that. Okay, if you've got a Bible, can you open it up uh, right into sort of just near the middle of your Bibles Uh, in the Old Testament? We're looking at Isaiah today, Isaiah 53, and we're going to look at verses 7 through to 11. Let me read this to you, Isaiah 53. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. As Hannah said, uh, this is the second week in our new preaching series looking at the person of Jesus. Um, Some of you know uh, that I first met Jesus, I first became a Christian when I was about 14 or so. I got invited to a sports camp. I was really into sport. It was run by Christians. And every evening the Camp Padre or Paddy, as we used to call him because he was down with the kids, Paddy um, would uh, do a sort of short presentation to talk about who Jesus is and what he's done for us and uh, it was uh, during those evenings he gave he would use different stories and illustrations to explain what Jesus has done for us and um, he would tell stories a bit like this he would do this he would get us to close our eyes and imagine a grassy field and so why don't you just do that with me everyone happy to do this just close your eyes imagine a lovely lush field And he would say to us, Paddy would ask, what colour is the field? And we would all say, Paddy, that field is green. And he'd say, yes, that's right. Now, I want you to imagine a sheep in that green field. What colour is the sheep? And we'd say, Paddy, that sheep is white. And he would say, "Yes, that's right." Now I want you to imagine the white sheep in the green field, and then it snows. And then it'd pause for dramatic effect. What color is the sheep now compared to the snow? And at that point, we all opened our eyes because we could see the cogs in Paddy's mind turning and there was no way we were going to give him the satisfaction of explaining something to us. You see, that sheep compared to the green grass did look pretty white and pure, but then compared to the snow, it looked dirty white or a sort of one of those pastel shades of white or off white that you'd get in a DIY store. And if I said so, then he would very quickly be able to say this. In the same way, Matthew, when you compare yourself to murderers and people who do terrible things, you may think that you look pretty white and pure. But when you compare yourself to the perfect whiteness that comes down from heaven, then you're not so white anymore. By your own omission, you're like a dirty white. Compared to the perfect nature of God, you are off-white. And then he'd be able to say, and that's why you need forgiveness. That's why you need to become a Christian. And clearly the whole thing was a massive trap. So we all pretended we didn't understand. However, while everyone else was looking cool and uninterested, as I listened, it really got to me. Paddy's sheep illustration in the field got to me. Because what he said made common sense. If God exists and he is holy and pure, then you and I, who are not holy and pure, cannot go into heaven which is holy and pure. Because at that moment, it would cease to be 100% holy and pure. And Paddy showed us a verse in the Bible that read like this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that was the first time in my life that I saw something from the Bible and it actually made sense to me. I began thinking of all the things that make me something other than completely white. And I know that if I was to enter into heaven when I died, I would not deserve to be there. I would not be allowed in. I couldn't come in. And so clearly God would either have to lower his standards to sneak me in the back door or I had to turn back time somehow and undo the wrong things that I'd done. And I just knew that that wasn't a viable option. So I realised that I was stuck. I can't undo the bad things that I've done and I was aware of what some of those things were and I couldn't see how it was going to work. How was I going to get to God? And how would God deal with my stuff in my life that separated me from him? And how would things like judgment and forgiveness and grace and love all sort of come together to bring me closer to God? And I didn't know it back then, but the answer to all of those questions are found in our reading, written some 700 years before Jesus was born. God sends the suffering servant to save us. And so very simply, we're going to do this. We're going to look at the reading that we did from Isaiah 53 and we're going to split it into four parts. We're going to look at the trial, the tragedy, the tomb and the triumph. So let's kick straight off. Let's look at the trial. And to understand what the trial is all about, we're going to spend our time in verse 7. Verse 7 says this, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. We see four things that happened to the suffering servant and three times how he responded. So number one, first, he's described as oppressed. That word describes how slave owners make um, the lives of their slaves miserable. They hurt, they whip, they push, they push. And Jesus experiences this in the way that his enemies stalked him for his three years of ministry and then finally captured and tormented him. Second, Isaiah says that he was afflicted. This word implies humiliation, being brought low. It involves shaming. And Jesus once again endured this for three long years and then had it forced down his throat in the final week of his life thirdly he was led like a lamb to the slaughter the slaughter doesn't actually come till the next verse verse eight but here he he's just led to it and that is a terrifying thing because it's one thing to be treated harshly and punished and it's another thing to be led from death row to the place of execution knowing there's no escape And fourthly, he was sheared like a sheep before its shearers. He was stripped of his clothes, his friends, his honour, his divine protection. No one has ever been as naked as Jesus was on Good Friday. God himself serving mankind is exposed and humiliated again and again till not much is left. Which leads us to the way the servant responds to all of this. Three times we're told in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was silent before his shearers and he did not open his mouth. His response to all of that was amazing. Silence, patience and acceptance. Complete innocence. He had done nothing wrong. But there was no argument on his lips. There was no cowardice. There was just stunning bravery and purpose. A God who suffers through serving a sinful world. You know, when we see suffering service like that, I I think it's pretty hard to connect with it emotionally. But it does make us ask, am I willing to serve like that? Am I willing to show the same love and patience and bravery? I had a wonderful story a while back uh, from a pastor, uh, someone who worked uh, with the church, a guy called Tony Campolo. And he tells this story of serving others, which I think is helpful at this point. He says this, one afternoon as I sat in my office, the telephone rang and it was my mum. She told me that Mr Kirkpatrick had died and the least I could do was to go to the funeral. His wife, Mrs Kirkpatrick was a lovely lady and as we were growing up she did many wonderful things for the children um, of the church. And my mother was right, going to the funeral was the least that I could do to show respect and appreciation. So I arrived at the funeral home at 2pm just as the funeral was scheduled to begin. I rushed up the steps to find that there were several funerals in progress at the time. And I walked into what I thought was the designated room for Mr Kirkpatrick's funeral and quickly took a seat. I'd done it so hurriedly that I'd failed to notice that other than the elderly woman sitting two seats away from me, there was no one else in the entire room. And as I looked over the edge of the casket, he did not look like Mr. Kirkpatrick. I had the wrong funeral. And I was just about to leave when the woman reached over and grabbed me by the arm and with desperation in her voice says, said, you were his friend, weren't you? I didn't know what to say. The woman was reaching out for the assurance that somebody had a connection with her husband and some concern for her. What was I to say? I'm sorry, I'm at the wrong funeral. Your husband didn't have any friends. She needed to know there was somebody to whom her husband meant something. And so I lied. I said that I knew him and that he was always kind to me. I went through the funeral sitting at her side. And afterward, the two of us went out and got into the sole car that would follow the hearse to the cemetery. I figured that since I'd gone that far, I might as well go all the way. (laughs) I wasn't about to leave this poor lady alone in her hour of deep sadness. And we stood at the edge of the grave. We said some prayers. And as the casket was lowered into the grave, each of us threw a flower onto it. And then when we got back into the car and returned to the funeral home, As we arrived there, I took this elderly woman's hand and said to her, Mrs King, I have something to tell you. I really did not know your husband. And I want to be your friend and I can't be your friend after today unless I tell you the truth. I don't know your husband and I came to this funeral by mistake. I waited a long while wondering how she would respond. She took my hand and answered, you'll never, ever know how much you're being with me meant to me today and I know that there will be those that say I should never have lied but then they weren't there I had a feeling at the end of that day that there was a voice within me speaking to me saying well done thou good and faithful servant Jesus the suffering servant wants to empower us fill us with his spirit in a way that we serve That we love, we sacrifice as he does. And my encouragement for you today is to ask him for that help because we want to be that sort of people. Secondly, let's talk about the tragedy. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested for he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people he was punished. What's the fate of the servant who suffers? Well, he's cut off from the land of the living. He was not just led to slaughter, but he was slaughtered. I don't know if any of you have ever been to an abattoir, but that's what I think of when I think of the word slaughter. I get sort of that coppery smell of blood. I can smell death when that word is used. The tragedy is that Jesus is slaughtered. And just like every other sacrificial lamb, he wasn't slaughtered for his own sins, but the sins of the people. The consequence of our sin is that we deserve to be slaughtered for our sin, but he was slaughtered instead. Paddy illustrated it like this um, back a number of years ago now. He got out a big black book and told us to imagine that God was up there. And to imagine that his right hand was us down here, holding the book. And he said, I want you to imagine that this black book contains a list of all the things that you have done wrong. It contains all those things that have been hidden from others that you know to be wrong. And you need to think that this black book comes between you and God. He explained that that's the reason why so many people in society talk about wanting to know God or believing in God, but don't actually have a relationship with Him. And clearly, I had no relationship with Him because of my wrongs that separated me from Him. He explained that in this situation, if you die, you cannot just simply wander into heaven because you've fallen short of God's standards, God's glory. And you would be carrying your imperfection into a perfect place. Someone needs to deal with all of this stuff. Someone needs to pay a price for it. And so what's the answer? Well, Paddy said, in your left hand, imagine this is Jesus. And Jesus is down here and God is up there. But because Jesus was sinless, there is a perfect relationship between him and the Father. Jesus spends his time knowing the Father, doing the Father's will, enjoying the Father's love. There's no sin to separate him from God. He's able to live in this perfect son and father relationship. But at the moment he died at the cross, he took upon himself the sin of the world, of everyone who would believe in him. And by taking the sin, he takes the judgment and the punishment too. He's slaughtered on the cross for our sin so that we can accept now the free, available, wonderful relationship with God our Father without our sin getting in the way. But we must receive these benefits of that transaction by believing in Jesus wholeheartedly. Otherwise, our sin remains with us. So we have the trial and the tragedy. Thirdly, we have the tomb. Verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. After Jesus dies, he's laid in a tomb. He had no tomb of his own and Isaiah correctly prophesies that he would be given a tomb of a wealthy man, a disciple, Joseph of Arimathea. Now, this is fascinating. If you share the good news of the death and resurrection of Christ with a Muslim, you will find that a Muslim does not believe that Jesus died on the cross for sinners and rose again, but that there was a replacement on the cross and Jesus managed to escape death and was later taken to heaven. The Quran says this, And he's talking about the Jews and for their saying, indeed, we've killed the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary and the messenger of Allah. And they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him. But another was made to resemble him to them. And indeed, those who differ over it are in doubt about it. They've no knowledge of it except the following assumption. And they did not kill him for certain. Therefore, Muslims in general believe that the central message of the New Testament and of biblical Christianity is built on a mistake. Christ did not die and Christ did not rise. And therefore, the very heart of Christianity is false. Now, there are significant historical reasons why the Islamic reconstruction of the life of Jesus aren't true. But here's the point of taking this text this morning from Isaiah 53. This chapter was not written by Christians after Christ's coming, trying to distort or failing to understand what really happened on Good Friday or Easter. This chapter was written by a Jewish prophet 700 years before Jesus came. And what he saw in the future was not a Messiah who escapes death and resurrection, but a Messiah who dies and dies explicitly in the place of sinners and then rises again so many people miss the right the heart of christianity uh, today peter k that famous theologian, said this, I believe, I believe that a man called Jesus did walk the earth at one time, but I don't think he was a superhero that the Bible makes him out to be. Could he really turn water into wine? Did he really raise people from the dead? Well, if David Blaine can't survive underwater in a tank for seven days without needing medical attention, then I very much doubt it. I think Jesus was just an ordinary person like you and me. There's so many in a culture do not see Jesus for who he, who he is, who he is. The suffering servant, Isaiah prophesies. Jesus Christ came in the world to die. He came to die for in our place. He came to die for our sin. And this is our only hope. But wonderfully, it doesn't end there because you do have the trial, the tragedy, the tomb. We finish with the triumph. Verse 10, verses 10 and 11 he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand and after he has suffered he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities how does Jesus's death turn to triumph how can good come from death well verse 10 tells us that three things happen let's look at this carefully Number one, he will see his offspring. This means that he will live again and see those whom he saved by dying for them. Secondly, he will prolong his days. He will live for a long, long time since he's defeated death. Death cannot touch him anymore. And thirdly, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. God will save mankind through this great act of suffering service on the cross and give Jesus glory and honour. And then verse 11, again, triumph comes from death. Verse 11, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Look again, three results from him dying for sinners. Number one, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. He sees the fruit of his death and is satisfied. He is not dead, he is living and satisfied. The work is thoroughly complete. And he's glad, he's alive, he's satisfied. Secondly, by his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many. He justifies many, all those that trust in him. If you trust him you are declared right and righteous before God. That's what justify means. It happens through his own knowledge. He knew the need of mankind and he knew the extent of sacrifice needed. And lastly, he will bear their iniquities. The perfect man, free from the contagion of sin, but willing to take our sin to the grave, accomplishes the task fully. He's satisfied, we are justified, and all our sins are carried by another forever. We will never bear them again. You know, there's a story told of a group of pioneers Years ago, who were making their way across America to a distant place where they had been opened up for homesteading. They travelled in covered wagons, drawn by oxen, and progress was necessarily slow. And one day they were horrified when uh, they saw a long line of smoke in the west stretching for miles and miles across the prairie. And as soon as it was evident that the dried grass was burning fiercely and was coming towards them rapidly. They would crossed a river the day before, but it would be impossible to go back to that before the flames would be upon them. One man only seemed to have an understanding of what should be done. He gave the command to set fire to the grass behind them. And then when the space was burned over, the whole company moved back over it. And as the flames roared on towards them from the west, a little girl cried out in terror, are you sure we'll not all be burned up? And the leader replied, my child, the flames can't reach us here, for we're standing where the fire has been. And that's what we believe as Christians, that Jesus takes the fire of judgment for us when he dies. Isaiah describes this restoration to us as a triumph. When we trust God, we stand where the fire has already been. And that night, many years ago now, as Paddy explained the problem of sin, I put my hand up at the end of his talk and decided to put my faith in Jesus. I saw that the trial, the tragedy, the tomb, the triumph of Jesus, as described by Isaiah, wasn't just this irrelevant story from two and a half thousand years ago but rather a chance to see who God was a suffering serving God who dies and rises again that enables me to stand where the fire has already been because he takes it for me let me pray for us as we finish why don't we have the band back as well that'd be great Perhaps you want to just close your eyes with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have not left us on our own, but you have intervened in our lives by sending your son Jesus, the suffering servant. Open our eyes that we might see Jesus today. Help us to See the glory of what he accomplishes on the cross for us. I pray for those of us that perhaps have been Christians many years. Help us to worship you today. Help us, Lord, not to grow weary in enjoying the benefits of our salvation. Open our eyes to see a suffering God who gives everything so that we might live. And I pray for those of us still on that journey, open our eyes today as well. I pray that many would see how wonderful you are. Thank you, Lord, that we get to stand before you because Jesus takes our sin away. Now we want to worship you, Lord. We want to hear from you. We ask Holy Spirit that you'd come on this time of some worship. We pray together we might minister to one another. We might pray for each other. We might seek your face together be glorified in this place, in this church. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.